0: You're listening to Mike Check, a podcast by Third Wave Fund. For over 25 years, Third Wave has resourced youth-led gender justice organizations that philanthropy has consistently left behind. We do this work because we know when directly impacted communities have the resources they need to come together and dream up our shared liberation, they have the capacity to build stronger organizations and movements for social change. Whatever your relationship is to philanthropy, we're glad you're tuning in to hear directly from queer, trans, intersex, and sex-working organizers and activists on their movement origin stories, what their day-to-day work is like, and how we, and especially those in the funder sphere, can best support them, not just in moments of crisis, but for the long haul. And I'm your host, Priya Dedlani. Today's conversation is an important and always timely one. We'll be hearing from Valeria Miranda Farrick, a transformative and restorative justice practitioner and educator who is also the executive director of Unity Circles, an organization dedicated to building networks of intergenerational leadership that are rooted in the values and practices of transformative and restorative justice. Unity Circles is also a 2022 grantee of Third Wave's Accountable Futures Fund. Valeria will be in conversation with Stas a non-binary Black Italian storyteller, transformative justice practitioner, abolitionist, organizer, healer, and survivor who is also the co-founder of Spring Up and Blue Light Academy of the Liberatory Arts. They'll be discussing how and why social justice organizations need to reimagine how we approach conflict in our work and what facilitators need most at this time to grow the practice of transformative justice, restorative justice, and community accountability. But before we dive in, we're excited to hear from Third Wave's very own My Doan about our Accountable Futures Fund and have a quick introduction to how the fund supports Black people, trans people, sex workers, and youth who are navigating conflict and harm in ways that decrease the power of carceral and state systems. Welcome My. So for folks that may not be familiar with the Accountable Futures Fund here at Third Wave, can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how it got started?
1: Sure. So the Accountable Futures Fund is a five-year, multi-year grant-making program that resources groups and organizations led by queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, people of color who are developing the fields of transformative justice, restorative justice, and community accountability. This means that we fund groups that are building up the skills and capacity of their communities and the movements they're a part of, to respond to harm and violence in ways that decrease the power of prisons, police, and other carceral systems. The Accountable Futures Fund began as a pilot fund in 2019 in response to Third Way Fund witnessing conflict and harm within QT-BIPOC-led movements for gender justice and really wanting to think through what our role was as a gender justice funder when conflict happens within the movements and organizations that we resource. We really wanted to make sure that if we were to create a fund to resource conflict resolution that it would be aligned with the needs of those on the ground and at the forefront of this work. And so we developed this fund through a series of interviews we did with QT BIPOC organizers and practitioners in this field and continue this commitment through our ongoing learning and relationship building with our advisory council members and grantees.
0: So we know Third Wave Resources youth-led gender justice movements across the U.S., and we know that gender justice is a part of every movement for justice. Can you talk a little bit about how transformative justice intersects with gender justice?
1: So from what I've learned, so much of transformative justice is about recognizing and addressing the conditions that contribute to harm and violence happening. And when we think about these conditions, I think it's really important and necessary to include in analysis around how things like patriarchy, misogyny, and transphobia are contributing in implicit and explicit ways to harm and violence happening in the first place. Otherwise, we risk replicating rather than disrupting the conditions that we're trying to shift, change, or transform. I also think of organizations um, and current and former grantees uh, like Survived and Punished and the Devi Co-op who are actively supporting survivors of violence who are criminalized for self-defense. Their work really shows how the criminal legal system and other carceral institutions are particularly dangerous for cis and trans women of color and femme, non-binary, gender non-conforming and trans people of color and why gender justice is critical to developing alternatives
0: to the police and other carceral systems and practices. Thanks Mai, that's really helpful. I'm wondering if there's one important thing you've learned from your time in creating AFF that you'd like to share with folks?
1: Something I find really exciting about this fund is that funding transformative justice, restorative justice, and community accountability with care and responsibility requires that we really look at and challenge how we think about and practice philanthropy at every level. For example, we've learned how strict timelines and funder-driven outcomes are not in line with the values or needs of the organizations we fund through the Accountable Futures Fund, and in fact, create real barriers and limitations to their work. Because of this, we developed this fund to offer five-year multi-year general operating support grants as a way to meet the need for sustainability through long-term funding without strings attached to outcome and to offer funding that allows more room for the creative, adaptive, and often nonlinear nature of this work. It's been really powerful to learn from the visions and expertise of our grantees and advisory council members and apply that to how we resource this work. And we're always learning and trying new things
0: with as much intention as possible. Appreciate this quick 101 from you, Mai, about the Accountable Futures Fund and transformative justice. And before we get into our conversation with Valerian Stoss, we're wondering if you want to give any shout-outs?
1: I would love to shout-out our grantees and advisory council members. They make up so much of the brains and heart and muscle behind this grant-making program, and I am so inspired by and appreciative of the work that they do.
2: Hi, friends. This is Maurice. Sylvia. And Jillian. The development team at Third Wave Fund.
3: We're not here to tell you to buy new sheets or improve your internet security, although you should definitely do that. We're here to ask you to fuel gender justice movements by giving a monthly donation to Third Wave.
1: Whether you give $5 a month or 500, we need you. Find the donation link and other ways to support our work
0: in the show notes. No coupon code required welcome stas and valeria we're so excited to have you on this podcast i'll let you both introduce yourselves hey
3: y'all my name is stas i go by they them pronouns i am a light-skinned black italian i was born in italy but raised in miami so i definitely still identify with the south but i currently live in in Denver, Colorado on Ute, Arapaho, and Cheyenne lands. I'm one of the co-founders, vision keepers, and imaginatrix at Spring Up and Blue Light Academy of the Liberatory Arts.
2: Greetings, my name is Valeria and I use she, her pronouns. I am a first generation Brazilian Afro-Latina residing in Boston, Massachusetts, land of the Pawtucket people. I am a restorative justice coach for Boston Public School in addition to being the executive director and founder of a restorative justice and transformative justice organization called Unity Circles. Thank you for having
0: me. To kick us off into this conversation about transformative justice, I wanna ask you know, every strong organization will inevitably have conflict, and we've seen that. You know, breakups, disagreements, um, interpersonal conflicts come to the fore, especially in social justice spaces. Um, So how can we best prepare for those moments utilizing a transformative justice framework and approach?
3: Yeah, I think this is a really good question because it is so real. And I think that sometimes, Our organizations will, like, judge ourselves when we deal with conflict. But the reality is that this is present in every organization I've been a part of, every community. And I think when we try to avoid conflict and have this kind of perfectionistic approach, we're living into white supremacy culture. And conflict isn't necessarily about harm. It can be about strategic disagreements. Just because we're trying to move towards another reality doesn't mean that we all agree on the pathway to get there on the best strategy to prioritize. And the reality is that conflict can be really generative and supportive in us figuring out what is realistic within our capacity, within our time frame, within our skill sets. We're not doing this work on our own. We're always part of ecosystems of change. And when we try to do everything, we end up not doing anything that well. And so um, prioritizing being able to say no, being able to know what's right for us, is actually a really important part of creating an effective organization and community. And so I think that we often see conflict showing up in feedback and evaluation, in collaborative decision-making, and if you're not noticing conflict coming up in those spaces, it probably means that there's a really strong power dynamic, and that power is determining what's seen as legitimate, rather than a space where different opinions can be held at the same time across power dynamics. So I think that conflict is actually an indicator of a healthy community, Um, rather than a very hierarchical community that's focused on efficiency and on doing what you're told. And so I think like understanding and respecting our differences and where we diverge and being able to discern between what conflict is interpersonal tensions and what is strategic conflict is very important in being able to make space for the right conversations and the right disagreements. I think that some of the ways that we do this effectively using a transformative justice framework is in really having the conversations, even if they take time, to have clear values that have definitions and that are paired with practices that you can actually do. The challenge is that values are often very abstract and it can be hard to know what they look like to live into and we can have really intense disagreements about, for example, what the value of respect looks like. A clear example would be if you have the value of freedom or liberation of all, a tactic or a practice would be accountability. And when we're thinking about accountability, we're thinking about relational accountability. So how are we living into our relationships with with one another, how are we thinking about care and support, and we're also thinking about task accountability, and what does it look like for us to follow through on our commitments, um, and have open conversations about capacity, about disability justice, about urgency, about what of our tasks are realistic, who are we accountable to, and why are we doing those tasks. So I know for me, I tend to break any rule that someone gives me. Um, And so if someone says, oh, you need need to complete this task by Friday, I'm going to push it because I don't like being told what to do. Whereas if someone tells me, you know, I need this information from you in order for me to do my next step, because this project needs to be available to the community by the winter when they're dealing with this issue, I'm going to feel a different level of commitment to that task than if I think about it as a rule. So thinking about who are you accountable to, what are you accountable to them for, and building norms of accountability from the bottom up. Thinking about accountability as a personal commitment, and then as a relational commitment to your colleagues, to your community, and then accountability to leadership and leadership's accountability to the rest of the community, rather than focusing on accountability as a top-down kind of management strategy, I think is, is a really important lesson that we can learn from transformative justice.
0: Ooh, thank you, Stas. I really appreciate that. And I'm going to pass to you, Valeria, if you want to add to that or speak to your own experience navigating um, conflict through through transformative justice work.
4: Absolutely. Um, Thank you, Stas, for sharing. There's so much there. But I think something that has come up for me that feels really important is um, I'm not sure I'm sure you've read um, the essay Dreaming Accountability by Mia Minguez. I love this essay, um, this blog, um, and for me, that has really shaped the way that I think of accountability and conflicts. Uh, growing up, accountability and conflict has been very scary. Um, I've rarely been conflict avoidant and I didn't know that until I met my partner. Um, and he showed that to me or he told me and he reminded me. Um, and that was kind of my first experience with like consistent accountability. Um, and it really taught me how to be in better relationship with conflict. Um, and when I first learned, when I first read, uh, dreaming accountability, it brought so many questions up for me. It's actually like a essay that, has a lot of questions, actually, um, and helps guide the reader um, to think about their relationship with accountability. And for me, my interpretation of it um, is that it talks about accountability. It can be scary, daunting. It can be intimidating. And also, it's beautiful. It can be enlightening. It can be transformative. Both yet, right? It can be uncomfortable and it can bring so much beauty, right? Um, And so I always go back to this. I always go back to the essay because it's just a reminder to me that like hmm, I may be in conflict. I'm in extreme discomfort, (laughs) but there's so much possibility ahead. Um, And this is the this is actually an essay that I bring a lot into the work that I do Um, as a restorative justice coach in schools. um, We've spent two years really reading this essay and sitting with it and building a culture around it. And we always talk about accountability is a gift. Feedback is a gift. Um, and that's been really, you know, for people it, that's been really hard to sit with. But when we have created this culture of feedback is a gift then we become less defensive um, or the hope is that we become less defensive. And so I really tried to bring that into my organization as well. Um, and talking about this idea of generative conflict, that conflict can be generative. It can be paired with possibilities. Um, transformation um and so many so many opportunities right and so this idea that conflict it can be scary and it can also be beautiful and so those are the two things that like i'm holding as we're having this conversation um and i think another point Saj, you were talking about was values Um, two values that i really hold in this work dearly um is curiosity and humility and i say it all the time, curiosity and humility, because I've I've led and held, I've had the privilege of holding um, hundreds, if not a th- thousands of processes over the past decade, both with young people as young as five years old, <laughs> to I think probably the eldest is 60 years old. And I say is because I've, I've been in spaces of vulnerability, right, of people opening up their heart. So I just found that people there's we, we so much that we don't know in conflict and it's just about holding people in that and that uncertainty curiosity allows us to just be more open to the possibilities and allows us to be wrong and not come up from a place of like i am right <laughs> um and humility does as well so those are the two values i really hold in this work and i really try to uplift in my work in the community doing transformative justice um, and also in my work in institutions right because there's so much we know but there's so much that we don't know and there's so much beauty in that
3: oh valeria there's so much there i feel like you got my brain sparking my mind my body feeling you know i'm with you i think that that last piece you were talking about so much that you don't know that feels really critical for me because i feel like that connects to the importance of relationship building i think that relationship building with other people as well as with an organization. You know Spring Up um, this year is our 10-year anniversary as an organization and it's really interesting to think about like how much history we carry and how that shapes the way we move as an organization and Um, I co-founded the organization with my partner, my spouse, so I really resonated with what you were talking about of kind of navigating accountability in your relationship as like a real indicator of what this looks like. And our third co-founder, Shaina, has been one of my closest friends since we went to Montessori school together and we were toddlers. And so the three co-founders We've really known each other a really long time and so much of what we do comes out of our relationships with one another. And it's been really important for us to think as we bring other people into the organization, there's a gap there in how much we know about each other and how much we don't know about this new person. How much we know about the history of this organization and how much this person doesn't know about the history of the organization. We've been developing this document that's called the Conflict Misalignments and Endings document, and right now it's about 30 pages and it goes through the history of our organization based on the patterns of lessons we've found in the conflicts and endings we've had. So it doesn't have any specific examples um, that are naming people, but instead saying, you know, um, one of the core lessons for us is on abolition and what it means for us to be an abolitionist organization and some of the fallouts we've had with partners around our abolitionist stance and how that's kind of strengthen our commitment and our understanding of what we may gain and what we may lose from that stance and it's opened up some really incredible conversations for our team to get on the same page as well as to have conversations about you know what brought you here what were you doing before and i think that that idea of feedback as a gift is really critical for me that came a lot from learning about design thinking human-centered design participatory research Um, and the value of humility as a researcher, as a designer, in centering those that you're designing for in how you you design a product, a service, an organization. And I think that human-centered design and tech can be kind of icky, in my opinion. I think sometimes the way that it's framed can feel very white. Um, And yet I've learned some really incredible tools um, that we incorporate in our trainings at Blue Light Academy to support people in centering feedback, seeing feedback as a gift, and having effective containers, um, and, uh, you know, how you design a survey, how you ask for feedback, really shapes the kind of feedback that you receive. So getting feedback early and often can catch conflicts and disagreements before they escalate into harm or someone feeling really unheard and silenced. And that's one of the biggest issues that I see in organizations. When I'm, because we do a lot of consulting with organizations, especially in response to harm and conflict that they've had. Um, And so much of what we see is that People were trying to give this feedback. And it was not being heard or there weren't containers to have real conversations about it while it still felt like something that was maybe a curiosity or something that was like a little bit off. But because you didn't talk about it at that point, it escalated and it escalated. And now people are furious and they're writing open letters on Instagram and the Slack channel is, you know, super passive aggressive and all of that. And, you know, if you have those containers for feedback early and often, you can prevent
4: things from escalating relating to that point. Absolutely. Um, I really appreciate your framework and how, you know, stas so we've been working together this past year around um, building a framework for my organization, Organ- Unity Circles. Um, Unity Circles, we were founded in 2012 as a grassroots organization, but really haven't been established until 2018 more formally, and as we're rapidly growing, we're realizing that we have to be, make the, I think I got this from you, make the implicit explicit, right? And thinking about, you know, in, in regards to our relationship with conflict, accountability, how do we navigate those things? How do we explicitly name, create a culture of feedback? How do we in, you know, during the retreat and orientation, we're having one this Saturday, um, talk about this idea of generative conflict and have people sit with the idea of like, Okay, what is the relationship with conflict in my life and how have I navigated in the past? And this organization is asking me to lean into it. What's coming up for me? Right. Like having all these questions and sitting with it um, because this is what we do. Right. In order to be doing transformative justice, transformative work, we need to transform (laughs) and going back to Mia Mingus, transformation is not easy. You know, I think about the butterfly metaphor. Right. That Caterpillar has to go through a lot of distress and not distress, but like pain and discomfort um, in order to kind of evolve into a butterfly and to gain wings in order to fly. Um, And so how as an organization, we've been really thinking about that with your support around how do we make this work a little bit more explicit and think about the institutional knowledge we have in our heads, these values we have in our heads that we truly believe in, that we, Um, We live and put it into paper, I guess, or put it into writing um, so that when people are joining us in community, they understand um, the beauty and also the challenges of doing this work. Right. Because it's not simple. Transformation can look very pretty. Butterflies look beautiful, (laughs) but the process to become a butterfly may not be so beautiful. Right. Or may not feel so beautiful. So creating a culture of feedback is important and also um, creating a culture of calling in and calling out.
3: Yeah, man, you know, at spring up, one of our core values is non-binary thinking. And I think this binary between calling in and calling out is one that makes it seem like they're opposites. And, you know, I really appreciate, um, Sonia Renee Taylor did a Ted talk I think it's something about cancel culture. I think that's like the title, but what she is generally speaking to is this framework of calling on and that calling in often is tied to this idea of offering an immense amount of emotional labor. Of like, I'm telling you this is wrong and I'm going to facilitate this whole empathetic learning journey for you that gives the impression that in order to tell someone that something hurt, you then have to also offer a lot of yourself. Um, And I think that calling out tends to be perceived as like a very public thing. Um, And I find that often a private conversation, if that doesn't work, then calling out can work. But having a public, you know, statement be the first thing can be challenging if you already have a relationship. If you don't, sometimes that's the only avenue you have, right? Um, But I really appreciate this framework of calling on that she speaks about because it's the idea of telling someone, hey, that's not cool and Google it. You know, I don't have to do all the work to teach you, maybe hire a coach. You know, we had spring up, we have a, there's a collective of 11 of us and we offer coaching. Um, And a lot of the coaching we do is with folks who have committed harm um, or with uh, folks who are facilitating processes just to get someone else whose emotional labor is being recognized and valued to support you in going through that transformation journey. Asking someone to commit to that transformation does not necessarily mean that you personally need to be responsible for facilitating it. Because there are so many resources out there that once someone decides, I want to commit to this transformation, there are books, there are podcasts like this one, there's coaching, there are webinars, there are retreats, there are spiritual communities, there are peer groups, there are all kinds of things that folks can access if they choose to go through that transformation that doesn't require the person who experienced that harm to facilitate that process for them and i think that i love that you mirrored back to me the making the implicit explicit because that is something i say on a loop because i feel like one of the things that it's often implicit in our organizations and communities is emotional labor and is the invisibilized labor of care and emotional support. And that is critical to sustaining our movements. And yet often it does not get recognized. It does not get valued. It's not part of someone's job description. Or if it does get added to a job description, maybe you're the HR person, that's actually about state liability. That's not about care and support. And I think that when we make the implicit explicit, we start to notice the ways that white supremacy culture becomes ingrained in us through school um, through these expectations of how power operates, um, through these expectations of quote-unquote professionalism, right, um, that often get weaponized against people of color, against disabled people, especially neurodivergent people, um, and that when those aren't made explicit, right? We end up falling into patterns that are expected of us outside of our general community, and those tend to be dominated by white supremacy, ableism, um, and capitalism, right? And I think that we have this assumption that when we step into social justice spaces, we are somehow outside of all of that. We are somehow in this sort of utopia where nothing like that happens. And that's why people get so upset when those things become present. And that's why, like you were talking about Valeria, the way that we do onboarding, the way that we set up the container for a training space is so critical because we have to be explicit about the fact that none of us are perfect. That conflict and harm will show up in these spaces and that we'd rather have them show up in these spaces because we then get to practice how we will respond with folks who are values aligned with us and we start all of our trainings with this quote that was adapted from bell hooks it's in the book feminist accountability by Anne Rousseau and the quote says rather than trying to control whether oppression will manifest the focus is more on how we will respond when it manifests. We should think of it as inevitable rather than surprising because a commitment to anti-racism or anti-violence does not mean that you will never buy into privilege. What it does mean is that when you make a mistake, you are able to face it and make needed repair. I don't have a completely naive understanding that if we're all free, we'll all be perfect and we'll never harm one another. That's not realistic but I want to have it so that our communities have the skills and the commitments to address when something goes wrong without needing to call on someone else. That's, I think, a core framework of transformative justice is deprofessionalization. And when I see this focus on, we should have more social workers, we, uh, we should have more mental health professionals, you know, sure, that's great. But also, Getting a license in uh, mental health is only an indicator of a skill set that we hope that everyone can learn, whether they get that credential or not. You know, I I also have worked a lot with young people. And I think that what I hope, what I think the, the point of transformative justice is, is that no matter who is in a situation when something has gone wrong, justice is already there.
0: Yeah. Wow. You, there's so many questions I have and you all have shared so much. My brain is bubbling over, but you already kind of started speaking to this Stas. Um, and so I want to like ask the question and then Valeria invite you to respond. So thinking about deep professionalizing this work and bring like allowing it to be something that everyone in communities can access justice on their own.
4: How do we, do that? Like, how do we build that? Yeah. And I feel like Saz has spoken to this, but at its most basic is like transforming our relationship with conflict and accountability and seeing it as the human experience. (laughs) We're not above it, right? We're beside it. (laughs) We're not not above it, not below it. We're beside it. Um, And just changing our relationship to see that, okay, this is part of the experience. How do I work through it? Who are the people that are going to support me in my accountability? Um, I don't believe that you can hold someone accountable, but people can support you in your accountability, right? And so who are your people? Um, Thinking about pod mapping, right? I think that's a huge resource, um, where you're thinking about the people in your life that who you're accountable to, um, who are the people that can support you in and accountability are the things that I'm, that are coming up for me um and just values I think what values guide you um and I as I said before the two values that I feel are the most important in my work and just not my work professional work right but my personal life is curiosity and humility and holding those two values at the center of this work
3: Yeah, I really, I really resonate with that so much. And I think in my experience, people often have a hard time identifying who is there for them. And an important thing is not to have also a perfectionistic ideal of what support looks like. And we designed um, safety and care plans that can support people in mapping out their support system, their the warning signs that they're feeling overwhelmed, their care plans, um, their boundaries. And one one core point of that at the beginning is that is that in conjunction with the pod mapping tool, We make it so that it's not just general support people, because you might turn to different people for different things. So who's my support person when I'm working on taking accountability? That may be a different person from who's my support person that I like to get into my body and work out with which is another form of care that may be different from the person who brings me a lot of joy and laughter which can often be even a young person in your life which you might be uncomfortable putting that child on your pod map but if that's the person who brings levity and joy to your life then you can have kind of different facets of who you turn to for support without having kind of this perfectionistic ideal of the most well-rounded best friend who knows everything about you and who can support you in anything that you go through, right? Um, And I think this question of like, how do we get these skills to everyone is really why we founded blue light academy of the liberatory arts i've been passionate about learning about this for many years and i remember there was a point where there were only a couple books that talked about transformative justice some of them were out of print and you would have to buy it for like 85 dollars on ebay or something to get it and it was it was tough i think as transformative justice has been getting more airtime and and more folks know about it, it can also create this kind of uh, idolization of people and putting people on a pedestal as, that's the person who really knows how to do this, right? And the challenge is that that's so contradictory to transformative justice. The point is that you're doing it with people in your community, in your life, and they will be imperfect. And the number of requests we get, can you facilitate a process for us, I don't know you, I can coach you so that y'all can facilitate a process for yourselves, right? Like I've been working with Valeria to support her and her community in incorporating this, and I know Valeria! But like the point is that you are always going to be better poised within your own community than someone who's outside of your community that you idolize as knowing all the answers, right? Um and so that's why we founded Blue Lit Academy is to make this information more accessible to people and to provide easy access to support. You know, you can join our subscription community for five dollars per month and get quarterly coaching with our team to support you in your process without necessarily paying the per um, coaching fee because we want it to be accessible to people. So I think that's super critical.
2: One of the ways in which Unity Circles gets to lean into TJ is through our Transformative Justice Practitioner Program, which we refer to as TJPP. And it's a five-month educational practicum experience for young adults ages 18 to 25 in the Boston area. And it's, an opportunity for participants, young adults, to build community with each other as they learn how to embody TJ values and practices. And I think one of the great things about our program is the accessibility component. Um, I found in the past decade doing restorative justice work and recently, you know, starting to engage and lean into transformative justice work is that there are a lot of people who aren't able to access it because of financial means, right? And um, People were eager to to learn about these movements and these practices, but they may not have the time, the space, um, and the resources to access it. And so what we have done is we've raised money to be able to stipend people um, and pay them as if it's a job, right? You're coming in, it's a job to do this labor, to learn about your lineage, to learn about and to unpack the harm that maybe systems have caused and... In addition, in addition to learning, there's so much unlearning that we talk, you know, we do we talk about white supremacy um, and how internalized that is in, in everyone, regardless of who you are as an individual. We talk about community accountability, harm reduction, safety planning, crisis response, right? And that's all labor, right? And so the wonderful thing is that we're able to compensate them um, and with the hopes that they can take this learning and use it within their lives, right? Bring it back into their local communities um, so that TJ can be a reality um, and something that we can strive to in Boston.
3: I love that. And I've been following your work for a while and I've met some of the young people who have gone through the program. And I think it's very much living into what we've been talking about of like identifying that young people are already doing this in their life and just providing more access to skills and support and community to recognize that as a valuable contribution to their lives, to the people around them.
0: I appreciate you both for sharing about the impactful work your organizations are doing. And I'm wondering how does philanthropy fit into all of this and specifically how can philanthropy deepen into solidarity with the work your organizations are doing and the movement at large?
3: So, yeah, I think that how can funding and philanthropy fit into this? Um, We've been having some conversations as the advisory board about what the right design for this program is. Um, And I think that, you know, I've seen the way that funding can create a sense of urgency in the work, can really be um, forcing the organizations to really focus on their deliverables to funders over their accountability to their community. Right? Um, They're often focusing on how they report to their funders over how they share back with the community what they're doing. And in order to stay on the timeline and stay within the budget, they can sometimes prioritize following through on what they said to their funders over implementing feedback from their community, um, over moving at the speed of trust. And I think that what's really critical for funders is to decenter themselves in the evaluation of a program. I think if you can focus on the way that the community is responding, um, valuing the way that a program adapts based on what's actually necessary for their sustainability over making sure that they completed all the deliverables, I think that Third Wave Fund does a really good job of being flexible and responsive to what the organization says they actually need. Um, I think that, you know, we at Spring Up have been funded by Third Wave Fund in multiple different Uh, grant programs. Um, And I think one of the things that I've really appreciated, which is also true of the Accountable Futures Fund, is the multi-year funding. Um, I think that especially when we're talking about trend funding, um, there may be organizations that get a huge influx of funds and they grow to meet that that size. You know they hire team members, they commit to programs that meet that size and the next year or two years later that funding disappears and it's not sustainable to say at that scale. And that is something that really concerns me because I've seen now at this point I've been doing this for over a decade I've seen a lot of really incredible organizations close after they seemed like they were the darlings of funders they seemed like oh wow everyone's so excited what they're doing and they're growing at this rapid pace and then all of a sudden they can't maintain it and they close Um, and so thinking about multi-year funding thinking about sustainable funding thinking about funding for general operating rather than for a specific program I think especially when we're talking about incorporating this sort of conflict strategies? How are you strengthening your relationships? So often the funding that you receive is for a specific program and it's difficult to allocate that funding towards your internal strategic planning and your relationship building and mutual aid for your team members and giving people paid time off because those things don't fit neatly into the line items for your program. And so thinking about general operating funding for multiple years is something that I think would be critical in order for organizations to be implementing the ideas that we're talking about. I also think that when we're talking about the next generation of leaders of transformative justice and deprofessionalization, a lot of folks are not going through the hassle of becoming a 501c3. Um, And I've seen a lot of groups also have really tricky relationships with their fiscal sponsors who are taking credit for their work, who are policing how they implement things. And so a lot of TJ groups that I know are unincorporated or are an LLC rather than a 501c3 and cannot receive funding from the vast majority of funding that's out there. We at Spring Up, we're a um, co op, we're a worker co op, so we're co owned. Um, by the team members. And you can't be a worker-owned co-op. I mean, there's strategies for co-ops within 501c3s, um, and there's some really interesting organizations supporting in the implementation of that. But being a worker-owned co-op means that we're focused on the feedback that we receive from our clients and students and community members over the guidance that we get from funders. And there are a couple funds that have still been able to support us maybe with a fiscal sponsor for a specific program. We receive funds from Life Comes From It, which I think is an incredible model of funding in this ecosystem um, that goes through a fiscal sponsor specifically for scholarships to our programs. That means that we don't have to have our General operating budget be fiscally sponsored, but instead we can have a scholarship fund be fiscally sponsored. And I think creative strategies to direct funds towards more informal grassroots formations that are not 501c3s is something that I would love to see more programs doing and prioritizing and figuring out how to do that effectively. Um, I think that's also really critical for some of the funding that Third Wave Fund does with sex workers and with groups that are, you know, maybe going to have issues if they become more formally in- incorporated, which is really critical and transformative justice when you're talking about communities that can't turn to the state as a resource. They're also less likely to be formally incorporated as a 501c3. And I think that's connected to this strategy of deprofessionalization. We had a partnership with NISCASA, which is the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault, where they paid for 80 community members around the country to participate in our transformative justice program for free, all in domestic violence and sexual violence advocacy organizations. And so many groups participated that told us it was incredibly supportive for them, but that they would not have been able to. Find the funding in their budget to be able to commit to that kind of thing. It was already a lot to find the time to be able to commit to it. And that was what was an appropriate request of them to be able to show up. And so we want to be doing more partnerships with funders, with foundations, to be able to sponsor folks in their community to get access to this coaching, to get access to retreats that train them in these skills, to get access to these courses, because it's not just the content, it's also the peer-based relationship building. And that feels really connected to deprofessionalization as well, because So often we feel isolated in what we're doing and like we have to create all of the things to fix what we're dealing with when in fact there may be other organizations that are already doing what you're trying to figure out how to do and you can learn from them like Unity Circles. I was just speaking to a program in New Hampshire that's trying to do a similar thing and I was like y'all gotta connect with Unity Circles because people are already doing this.
4: Yeah, absolutely. No, I just wanted to as a recipient of the third wave, um, I just want to talk about how that is given access to, to some of the people that we're, we're working with. So just to give you kind of context, um, when the organization Unity Circles was founded in 2012 until 2020, for eight years, we were all volunteer led. Right. And every single person. And what I found was that the people who stay longer within the organizations volunteering, wise like after they got their internship credit were economically advantaged right they were able to do an internship for two or three years right and the folks who wanted to stay but they couldn't because they had a livelihood who were economically disadvantaged could not stay right and those are the people that represented the communities we were working with right we were holding spaces we were holding circles within the public schools and we found that the people from the community actually couldn't do that without pay and so from the very beginning I saw that and if that was as an organization value-based organization we were like the first time we get money we're going to pay people young people we're going to pay people to do the work so prior to even last year was 10 years into the work last year was the first year that I'm getting paid (laughs) Um, and so prior to doing that um, we were paying young people first Right. And so because we're paying young people to be able to access these learnings, access these teachings, have a space to build community, have a space to build on their skills. They're able to do that with a stipend. So we pay them eighteen dollars an hour. So that's above the minimum wage. And we're able to offer them, you know, it's a job, but really it's a learning experience, right? But it's an opportunity for them to, you know, gain a livelihood, but also learn these skills that they can implement in their lives. Um, So just wanted to, you know, speak to the, you know, the gratitude for for having this. And also the the multi-year approach gives us a little bit more stability um, because we found that you know, constantly applying for grants, right? And some grants that have like all these metrics and quantitative data. And it's like, as an org, we talked about this as a board, like how do we quantify this? We can't be like, you have to do 10 conflict processes and let us know the outcome, right? Like that's not, it's not okay, right? (laughs) How do you quantify quality of life and community and care, right? And so, you know, the fact that third wave um, is unrestricted, is a multi-year, um, is really allowing us to continue to do this work in an unrestricted way so I just want to you know speaking from as a as a recipient um, just wanted to share that that this has made our work a little bit more a lot more accessible
0: thank you both for sharing that um, before we close does anyone want to share anything else like I don't want anyone to leave with any lingering feelings or things you wish you would have said but yeah anything coming to mind that you all want to lift up before we close this episode
3: Uh, I would just like to add that, you know, we host our courses and retreats three times a year. If you're listening to it when this comes out, we are Uh, accepting uh, registrations for fall courses and retreats Um, if you're listening to it afterwards there's a good chance we're doing it sometime soon because we do it three times per year Um, and we also have a mutual aid network uh, on patreon where we can get subscribers and so even if you just want to support this work um, if you want to subscribe to to share funds that allow for access to this we would really appreciate it and if you are a funder and are interested in supporting and expanding or getting access, please do email me or contact us at our, on our website, because that's really what we're looking for right now to make this sustainable for us as a community um, and to make this more accessible
2: moving forward. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And as always, wonderful connecting with you, Stas. And for those listening, if you're interested in learning how we are embodying transformative justice Um, as an organization, as individuals, check out our website, check out our Instagram handle. Our website is unitycircles.com and our Instagram handle is at boston. We're continuing to learn. (laughs) We're continuing to unlearn, you know, so this this work is very humbling. Um, So we appreciate you all being on this journey with us and we hope to Continue to learn with you as we navigate this world. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Stas and Valeria. We're so grateful to you both and all the gems you dropped during this episode. If you're listening and curious to find out more about the work Stas and Valeria do, or tap into the resources they shared, check out the show notes. And that wraps up Mic Check, Episode 7. Stay tuned for the next one. This episode was produced and edited by Priya Dlani and Monica Trinidad with support from MyDone. Our intro music was created and produced by Jordan W. Carter. If you want to hear past episodes, find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts and visit our website at thirdwayfund.org under the podcast tab and see the episode transcription and guest information. If you like this episode and want to show us some love and help our podcast reach beyond our networks, you can do so by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review, following us, and liking this latest episode on SoundCloud or Spotify, or by sharing this podcast episode on social media. See you next time.